We, we took a week off last week because it was uh, Easter Sunday. I can't believe that was a week ago. It's amazing. Um, Easter Sunday. So we are, we're, we're resuming now our series <coughs> through the book of 1 Thessalonians. And... Uh, <coughs> bye-bye. That's, that's why we have Facebook Live. So, uh, <coughs> um, yeah. So we, we've been going through this series called Transforming Community uh, based on the book of 1 Thessalonians. And... Uh, uh, for those of you who are new or have missed a few weeks, <coughs> the idea of transforming community um, is, is a community that transforms, that actually uh, when people join it, they, um, they themselves are transformed. Um, but also transforming community because when we look at First Thessalonians and we examine what it means, what, trans- what transforming community looks like, our idea of community is also transformed. So we're transforming our concept of community as well. <coughs> and so that's, I think, been happening bit by bit as we've been going along. So um, <coughs> the passage that <coughs> James just read out there is, is, is very, very practical. Um, there's, not, there's not a lot of, of, of what you might call doctrine, doctrinal teaching. It's very, very practical. And, and we're going to try and draw that out as, as we go through, as we think through uh, what it's actually saying. Um, so what I want to talk to you about tonight, number one is the vulnerability of transforming community, the vulnerability of transforming community. The second thing I want to mention to you uh, is the sustainability of transforming community. And then finally, I want to think about two ways to strengthen the church. All right, so vulnerability, sustainability, and then two ways to strengthen the church. So vulnerability of the transforming community. These were a bunch of <clears throat> brand new Christians, you know, that Paul was, was writing to in this letter. They were weeks, if not months old in their faith, having come from never hearing about Jesus and the good news of the gospel or anything like that, coming from a background of, of, of idolatry, you know, of Greek polytheism. In such a short space of time, they have embraced, they've accepted Jesus Christ. And so they're months old in their faith. They're sort of spiritual babies. Uh, their church and their community are so, so young and so vulnerable. And, and like human ba- babies, this early church required a lot of care, a lot of close attention. And so Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, he was a sort of the primary writer, if you like, <clears throat> um, saw himself as a spiritual father to this young church, this young uh, group of spiritual babies, if you like. And his role as the Apostle was not only to preach the gospel to those who'd never heard it before, but also to establish, to nurture, to bring them to maturity uh, so that they may be left on their own uh, to grow and to be taught by their own teachers, if you like. But look down at verse 17. It says here, We were torn away from you, brothers and sisters, for a short time. They were, they were torn away. Literally, that word is orphaned. We were orphaned from you. There's a sense in Paul's writing here in these few verses that the job was unfinished, that that him and Silas and Timothy left too soon. And they left this young baby church, these young Christians, to fend for themselves. He says there in verse 18, we tried to get back to you again and again. We eagerly, with great desire, wanted to be back with you people so we might love you and bless you and teach you and bring you to, to maturity. Tried again and again, he says in verse 18, but every time there was opposition, we failed. If you're familiar at all with the background of, of all this, um, you can, you know, if you're not, you can go and read in Acts chapter 17 that talks about Paul's first 
journey <clears throat> to this church, to this city called Thessalonica in modern-day Greece. And uh, it says there in Acts 17, which is a sort of a historic uh, treatment of his, his missionary journey, if you like, uh, he appeared in, in, in the synagogue uh, for the first few weeks. That's the, the, the place of worship for the Jews. And it says he reasoned, Paul that is, reasoned from the scriptures, from the Hebrew scriptures, um, that it was necessary for the Jewish Messiah to suffer, to rise from the dead, and that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. He is the one that they were waiting for. And Acts chapter 17 tells us that one or two Jews, but a lot of Greeks, a lot of non-Jews, believed the message about Jesus and followed Paul. And it says then that a bunch of jealous Jews who just obviously saw influence going away from them <coughs> formed a mob and they set the city in uproar. And so we read there that Paul and Silas slept, slipped out undetected later that evening. Otherwise, the mob would have set upon them and probably tried to kill them, stone them, something like that. But Paul, although he's been torn away from this young church, he fears for their safety. He's probably only writing a few months later, hundreds of miles away in another city, but just he could be on the moon as far as he feels towards this young local church. He, he knows who they are, young in their faith, they're open to attack. He fears for their existence. They are immature in their faith. Perhaps they even lacked resilience. In fact, he goes on to show in, in these few verses two specific areas that he was most concerned about. Firstly, he said, you, you know, this church has an enemy. He says in verse 18, Satan hindered Paul from returning back to the church. Later on in verse 5 of chapter 3, <coughs> uh, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, uh, I wanted to learn about your faith because I was worried, he says, that the, the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. That's another word for Satan, for the devil. Paul was worried about this little church because he knew, firstly, that it had an enemy, Satan. There's a real threat. And a young church, every young church, is, is easy prey for the evil one. He wants nothing more than to shut down local churches, or at the very least to make them so insignificant, so pathetic, so institutionalized that they are no good for the gospel. That's what the evil one wants. But secondly, Paul was worried because of the suffering that this church was facing. And we saw that, we've seen that over the last few weeks. Way back at the beginning, he said when he first heard the gospel of Jesus to the church, they received the gospel with much affliction, a lot of opposition, from within the city. It was clear throughout that this was the case. But he says in verse 3 of this particular passage, we were destined for this. This is something that happens when you receive the good news of Jesus. There will be opposition. But it was particularly pronounced, particularly severe in this city in Thessalonica. And so together, the evil one and this opposition, this affliction, were pushing greatly on this little church and so we can see throughout this passage the pastor's heart for his people. It's like Paul agonizing over these young believers that he loves. He wants them to thrive. He wants the best for them. And yet he's anxious for them. I guess uh, as, a, as a pastor, I can, I can relate to that in some ways. When I'm away, even for a week, <clears throat> I want to know, how's it going? Is everybody okay? What was the preaching like of the guy who came in? Is everybody any issues, you know? 
But for Paul, this is so much more pronounced. His, his profound love for this church that had accepted Christ in the midst of intense suffering. Maybe Paul was aware, I'm sure he was, of Jesus' parable of uh, the sower. Um, David uh, Martin preached on this a few weeks ago. <clears throat> Jesus taught in Mark chapter 5 that you know, the sower goes out with some seed to sow the seed. And, and some of the seed, it says, falls among the rocky ground. And the seed sort of springs up quickly. It, it, it sprouts very quickly. But soon, when the, when the sun comes out, the little sprout just withers away because it's got no root it's gone into rocky ground it hasn't gone into good ground <coughs> and jesus explains it look the seed he says is, is the word it's the gospel and someone's sowing the word and he said some people will hear the word listen with great joy and yet they have no root and so they will endure for a while but says jesus when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word immediately they fall away. And the Thessalonian church received the word with much joy. We saw that in the first opening chapter. Paul saw that they received it with much joy. And now he's away and, and now he's wondering, did they just fall on rocky ground? Is this persecution and this opposition, is it just going to crush them and then it comes to nothing? Is all my labor going to be in vain? Asked Paul. See, folks, the issue with that church is this they knew the facts of the gospel they knew that jesus of nazareth the jewish messiah long awaited lived a perfect life was convicted for sins that he didn't commit he died on a cross a roman cross and on the third day he rose again they, they knew that <coughs> they knew the implications that one day jesus is going to come back again to reign in perfection and completion. They got that. But the issue was, has that gone down deep enough? Has that actually affected them deeply? In other words, is there a rich enough community that has formed around this gospel message? Is there a transforming community? Something that can stand up against Satan? Something that can survive against affliction? We can start to see and perceive maybe behind some of these words the importance of community that is formed around the gospel, of transforming community. We've been, that's why we've been looking at this week after week over the last few weeks in this series. Because gospel community, transforming community, gives shape and it gives form to new believers. It teaches not just what to believe, but it shows us how to live. It shows us the difference our values make in life decisions. See, community is about nurturing a community of believers who are transforming, that's the effect they have, and yet they're being transformed themselves. And that was an important thing in Thessalonica. That's not something you can rush. And Paul and his friends, when they were torn away from this church, they were worried that there was insufficient community. It was important in Thessalonica. It is important here in Belfast. Doctrine is good. Theology is good. But it's not only about doctrine and theology. We are about a lot more than just that. 
It is my hope and prayer, and I think this is our experience, starting to see it. The doctrine, teaching, produces transformation. A people who have been transformed because of that doctrine. And so at Foundation Church, we, we, a few weeks ago, we, we uh, agreed a statement of faith as, as a little membership, which is great. And it's good to be clear about what we believe and, and where that comes from in the Bible. And we've got all that sussed. But <clears throat> that's not it. It's not just about getting our theology straight. It's about developing a transforming community, leaning into one another, one another's lives. <coughs> Said a few weeks ago about proximity and presence within the transforming community, living near to people, living with people, giving our lives to one another and to those who don't know Jesus, because that is the gospel community that should be forming around the gospel word. You know, we can run as many alpha groups as we want. We can host as many Christianity Explored sessions. We can hold as many evangelistic programs as we want. But those things will fall to the ground and be practically worthless if they are not done in the context of transforming community. There's no point in telling people what they need to believe and then saying goodbye. We need to be the kind of church that welcomes <coughs> new people into our community. But that's something that we can and are providing here at Foundation, although we are still small. We are growing in this. Even this weekend, as, as, as we've seen uh, with CAP, enveloping people into community. And it takes a long time. It's easy to, in one, in one sense, to talk about the gospel. It's so much harder to open your lives to someone and to welcome them in. But that's what we're all about here <coughs> at Foundation Church. But anyway, the vulnerability of transforming community. Let's move on then to the second point, sustainability of transforming community. All right? Young, new churches, young, new believers are vulnerable. No doubt about that. But look, sustainability of transforming community. Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 3, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens and we sent Timothy. He says again in verse 5, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. Timothy uh, was part of Paul's missionary team. Paul never, well, generally didn't minister on his own. He, he went with other people, other apostles, <coughs> uh, ministered as part of a team, sharing the good news of Jesus, gathering new believers, planting churches, moving on. That's what he did. And so he sent Timothy, who's like a, a young leader. He's Paul's understudy, uh, Paul's uh, disciple, if you like. And he sent him back to Thessalonica, it says in verse 2, to establish and exhort you in your faith, so that no one may be moved by their afflictions. That was Timothy's job, to strengthen the church. He was sort of Paul's uh, representative. And he was commended, we can see there, as, as a brother of Paul and a co-worker in the gospel of Christ. Co-worker of God in the gospel of Christ. So Timothy goes off and he then comes back. And, and when you read this and look at verses 6 through to 10, you see there is just a remarkable change in tone. In the first section, Paul is almost full of anxiety and, and, and wondering and, and, and tension. You know, he just wants to know how they're getting on. And then Paul, uh, sorry, Timothy comes back in verse 6 and <coughs> it's as if the switch has been flicked in the opposite direction. Timothy says in verse 6, brought back good news. 
And according to Paul in verse 7, that was a great comfort to him. Great relief. Joy and thanksgiving to God. Look at verse 8. I love this. For now we live. That just goes to show the depth of Paul's sort of anxiety beforehand. And then when he heard the good news that they are indeed doing well in their faith, now we live. Love that. We can breathe again. Why is that? Why, why the profound change? Well, let's look a little deeper. The report was that the church of Thessalonica was doing well. Contrary to Paul's fears and worries, they were doing well. It says, <clears throat> uh, Timothy brought us the good news of faith and love and their desire to see Paul again. This was a church, don't forget, that was renowned <coughs> from the beginning for their faith and their love in Jesus and their practical works of service to their city. And so Timothy returns to say that they are still doing that. They're still thriving in their faith. They're still moving forward with works of service. It is present and it is growing. So for all his concern, the church is thriving. It is persevering. God has clearly been at work, even though Paul wasn't there. And despite the frustration or that sense of unfinished business, of being torn away, of being made to be like, a, like an orphan, God has still been at work in this young, vulnerable church, powerfully at work, sustaining and growing them. And of course he has. Because when we understand how God is presented to us in the Bible, we realize that God is sovereign over all. <coughs> He's the king. The church belongs to Jesus. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the, the supreme commander. He is the one who reigns. Of course the church has thrived. We saw this earlier on in our series, actually. One of the fundamental principles of transforming community is that number one, it originates in God. Remember that? Number two, it's birthed by word and spirit. And we can see those things so clearly in this little church in Thessalonica. This is how it goes, folks. God saves his people by choosing to set his love upon them. And then he sends his Holy Spirit to regenerate them, to take them from spiritual death to spiritual life. He gives them the gift of faith in Jesus when they hear and respond to the gospel. And these people, God carries through, bringing them one day to complete victory and total blessing. That's how it worked for the church in Thessalonica. That's how it works for every believer in Jesus Christ. The doctrine is called perseverance of the saints. You've maybe heard of that term used before. What it's saying is this. Once God has saved someone from death and given them new life in Jesus, he will never let them go. Even Paul himself, much later in his writing career, said in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This has clearly happened in the church of Thessalonica. For all their vulnerability, God has been at work. How else can we explain this continued thriving of the church? Given that the enemy has been actively working against them, given the affliction and the opposition they are receiving from their own city, how is it that they can thrive 
and grow in love and faith and service if it were not because God has set his love upon them, sent his spirit into them. The spirit of Jesus Christ working through the church. And that's exciting to me because, as we said at the start of this series, there are some similarities between the church of Thessalonica, brand new, and us here at Foundation Church. <coughs> Similar position, newly planted, just like them, excited for the gospel, just like them, joyful, excited for the future, and yet small, and new, and let's face it, in some ways vulnerable. We have the same enemy that they have, Satan himself, who wants nothing more than for churches to become anemic, pathetic, powerless, whatever. Maybe we don't have the same level of suffering that they experienced in Thessalonica from their city. Maybe we will have that one day. <clears throat> but like the Thessalonians, the church, that is the transforming community that is being formed here, originated in God and was birthed by the Word and the Spirit. The Spirit of Christ is among us right now. I know it may not feel like it, but he very much is silently, quietly at work through the preaching of his word, through the singing of the praises, through the prayers. The Spirit of Christ is with us and that means that we are no match. So the enemy is no match for us. <coughs> it's true of churches, it is true of individuals that make up those churches. God will sustain them. Just imagine the effect this will have on us as a church if we understand this properly. That we've been birthed by God brought about by the Word and the Spirit, and given the Spirit of Jesus. If we get this as a church, as individuals, this would bring peace. Jesus has got us in his hand. It brings us security. Especially when you receive opposition, especially when we <coughs> receive opposition, especially if you feel insignificant, especially if you get ground down by the work of ministry. Jesus has got us. By the way, this doesn't mean that we're necessarily going to grow to become a huge mega church. We may be, I don't know. But this does guarantee that whatever God has started here among us, he will complete it. He will finish it. <coughs> so we thought about the vulnerability of transforming community. We thought about the sustainability, how God will just bring us through, will continue to sustain us. If anyone wants a cup of tea, just pop, pop next door. That's fine. <coughs> um, let's, let's finish by thinking then practically, because I said to you at the start, this is a practical text. Um, two ways to strengthen the church. Two ways to strengthen the church. God is sovereign, yes. <coughs> we will persevere when we are in the hand of Jesus, yes. Jesus has power, yes. He is Lord of all, he is King of all, yes. But notice, that doesn't cause Paul in these verses to disengage, just to say, you know what, God's in control, I don't need to do anything, I'm just going to sit back. That's not what he does. Far from it. It should be pretty obvious as you read through 
that Paul does not disengage. He understood divine sovereignty of God better than anyone else. (coughs) But he still saw the important role of human interaction in God's work. He saw human work in the kingdom of God as meaningful, as real responsibility that we all have. It's not either that God is in control or that we get busy and just do the work for him. No, the point is, it is both. There's no competition. It's because God is in control that we can have real, meaningful kingdom work. That what we do today as a church and every week counts. So two ways to strengthen the church. Two ways to develop transforming community. What are they? First of all, prayer. Look down at verses 11 to 13. 11 to 13 is a prayer of Paul. (coughs) Prayer is only effective, by the way, if God is sovereign, if he is all-powerful, if Jesus really is Lord. Otherwise, I wouldn't bother praying because if, if there's a chance that he can't do what I'm asking or he can't really bring peace to Syria or he can't really save my unbelieving family, then there's very little point in me praying because otherwise it's just a hope, isn't it? It's just a, a wish. I wish that God would do this. But yet we pray to someone who is Lord of the universe. He can do whatever he wants and he is a good God. Okay, so we're praying uh, to someone who can do anything we ask or imagine. And let's look at those few verses very briefly. Verses 11 to 13 at the end of our passage. (coughs) Just get an insight into the kind of things that Paul prays for. Number one, he says in verse 11, "May, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. So he's praying that he'll be reunited with this church once again. (coughs) Number two, he prays that you will increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Number three, he prays that your heart will be blameless in holiness before God. These are great things to pray. Taken together, he's praying that the church would enlarge, that it would deepen, that its community would develop more and more. We're never done. We're always growing. We can't rest on our laurels, depending, never, never, it doesn't matter where we are. These are great things to pray for our church as well. We just read in the New City Catechism, what should we pray? And the answer is the whole word of God directs and inspires us about what we should pray. So why don't you start tomorrow <coughs> taking this prayer of Paul and using that to pray for Foundation Church. And as you read through the Bible, you'll find other prayers as well. Why don't you allow those to stimulate your prayer? Help you to pray for things, as it said in the Catechism, uh, prayer for things we'd never, we'd never think of, we'd never ask for. If things have seemed too amazing for us, and yet the scripture just points us to pray big prayers. Anyway, that's a side issue. <clears throat> How are we going to do this as a church? <clears throat> Starting this month, April, uh, we're going to re- recommence our prayer gatherings. Um, monthly city prayer, monthly house prayer, once, once a month, the first Uh, Wednesday of the month we're going to do city prayer based here in the centre (coughs) the third Wednesday in the month we're going to do house prayer based in one of our houses and rotate that around because prayer is important as one of the ways to strengthen the church and when we gather together and we pray prayers like that to a God who is in charge 
Stuff's going to happen. It's going to happen. Second way to strengthen the church. Deploying gospel people or gospel ministers or missionaries or whatever you want to call them. <coughs> Second way to strengthen the church is deploy gospel people. Timothy deployed Paul, sorry, Paul deployed Timothy to Thessalonica to establish and exhort the new believers in their faith so they might stand strong, so this young church might be robust, resilient in their Christianity. And this young leader who is clearly gifted was sent by Paul, who couldn't go there for whatever reason, <coughs> to strengthen that church. And the church, no doubt, would have felt loved to receive this representative of Paul. They would have felt encouraged, they would have felt built up because Timothy was using his gifts among them to strengthen them. And we see that Paul doing that across the New Testament writings, whether it's the book of Acts or whether it's his letters, he is continually deploying his co-workers to go and strengthen other churches. Sometimes Paul went to the churches himself. Some other people in his, in his team had different gifts, and so they would serve different churches depending on their need. Think about Titus, for example. Titus was another younger pastor, and he was put on Crete by Paul and told, put what remains into order and appoint elders in every town. That was Titus's job. It seemed to be that Titus had organizational gifts. Maybe he had a gift of intu intuition. He was perceptive because he was to find the right men for the job of elder. And so on. Different gifts for different needs in different churches. And so as a church, we are to be strengthened through deploying gifted people. Whether that's in giving gifted people to other churches for a time or receiving gifted people from other churches for a time. We can give by sending leaders into various contexts as we move on and as we grow in our size and our depth. Some we can send to strengthen and support church plants that we have perhaps done. Some we could send to strengthen other local churches in, in Belfast or beyond. We, could, we can send people with gifts in preaching. We can send people with gifts in administration. We can send people with gifts in pastoral care, both here in the city, further afield in the country of Ireland. So first of all, we can give. We can deploy by giving. But secondly, as a church, we can be strengthened <coughs> when we receive <coughs> gospel people. We can benefit when others come to us to strengthen us and encourage us in our faith, much like Timothy did to the church in Thessalonica. We've seen this already. We've experienced this already in some form as a church when visiting speakers and visiting worship leaders have come uh, to bless us and encourage us. Uh, but yet we can go further still. This year, it is my hope and prayer, uh, or at least within a year, that we as a church will be able to join some kind of network or family of churches, a group of churches, so that we might be part of a wider body of churches like-minded on mission together pooling their resources, committed equally to planting and strengthening one another, sharing gifts and gifted people wherever there is a need. So second, the church is strengthened by deploying gospel people, and that will apply to us either in giving or in receiving, and probably both. Let's wrap things up together as we come to the end of this study. <clears throat> we at Foundation Church are a new church, just celebrated our one-year anniversary a few months ago. And this is an exciting thing to be a part of. Trust me, it is exciting. 
Possibly for some people it's too scary. Because we're vulnerable. And not everybody wants to join a vulnerable church. And that's fine. But with God's loving, fatherly care looking down upon us, with the spirit of Jesus among us right now as we gather, we (coughs) will be strengthened. We will be protected. And we will be empowered as a church to produce gospel fruit and experience real-life transformation to the glory of God. That is my prayer. And let's own that prayer together as we pray this prayer of Paul and many like it over the next few months and years as we move forward as a church. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your ways with us. (coughs) Thank you for choosing your people from before the foundations of the earth to set your love upon them. (coughs) I thank you for sending your own son to die in their place, that their sinful lives, my sinful life, is not counted against me. His perfect life is given to me through the work of your spirit and to those of us who trust in Christ. I thank you for your church. I thank you that it is your plan A for the salvation of the world. And so, Father, we pray for strength. We pray against opposition, whether it's in the form of spiritual attack or has a human face to it or from within. Father, will you protect us in the name of Jesus? (coughs) Would you strengthen us either by the the prayers of the saints, week in and week out, as we gather together. (coughs) Would you strengthen us as we send and receive gospel workers and enjoy one another, the gifts that we have already, (coughs) that we might grow more and more to honour you and to share the good news of Jesus with so many people in our city. And Father, as we come now to a time of communion, of bread and wine, May you refresh us as we feed upon Christ by faith, as we take the bread that reminds us of his body broken for us, and the wine that reminds us and points to his blood that was poured out for us. Would you refresh us? Would you confirm our faith to us? Lord, would you strengthen us through this wonderful means of grace? In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.